Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Holly Ainley, Head of Programs and Creative Engagement at the National Centre for Writing, here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. This time on The Writing Life, Steph, who is NCW's Senior Communications and Marketing Manager, speaks to the author Heather Parry about writing the grotesque body. Heather Parry was born in Rotherham and now lives in Glasgow. She has won numerous prizes, the Bridge Award for an Emerging Writer, Cove Park's Emerging Writer Residency, and the Laxfield Literary Launch Prize. In 2021, she was a Hawthorne Dunn Fellow, and her first novel, Orpheus Builds a Girl, was released in 2022. In this episode, Steph and Heather discuss Heather's two books, including her debut short story collection released last year, This Is My Body, Given For You, which explores the ways that the body can be changed and escaped from. They cover themes such as reimagining gothic tropes, the differences between long and short form writing, and resisting the limitations of genre. The pair also touch on Heather's experience of writing residencies and how these can benefit emerging writers. And so, I'm really pleased to hand over to Steph in conversation with Heather Parry. So Heather, welcome to The Writing Life. I am very happy to be chatting with you this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. I'm so excited to be chatting to you today as well. I'm a big fan of your writing and we met a few months ago at Dragon Hall when you were doing an event with us. It was an industry day and I was dying to speak to you then about your writing. So this is actually, this is lovely for me. I can't believe that was this year. I know. It feels like a whole world ago, doesn't it? This year has been about 10 years long, I think. Before we get started, could you tell us a bit about who you are and what you do in case some of our listeners are new to your work? Yeah, so of course, as you mentioned, my name is Heather Perry. Um, I am originally from Rotherham, which is between Sheffield and Doncaster in South Yorkshire, and I live in Glasgow now. Um, so yeah, I'm a novelist and short story writer, I suppose, although I'm still getting used to saying both of those things because it's only been in the last year that the two of my books have come out. Um, I'm just about to launch, well, in April 2024, my first nonfiction book as well, which is on the topic of sex robots with 404 Inc, who are a great um, small Scottish publisher. It's part of their Inklings series. And I also work for the Society of Authors as well. I'm their kind of Scotland person. Wonderful. You are fully embedded in the literature community. <laughs> but perhaps oh, for too embedded? Or are you going to say too embedded? <laughs> Slightly too embedded, yeah. Not at all. Well, I want to talk to you today about the novel and the short story collection that you mentioned that both came out in the past year. If we begin with Orpheus Builds a Girl, which is your debut novel, it was published in 2022 by Gallic Books, and it was long listed for the Polari First Book Prize. I absolutely, before meeting you, so I'm not I'm not just sucking up, I absolutely inhaled this book. I love it as a tale of kind of obsession and love and grief and power. And it really, the way it kind of plays into gothic tropes and sort of manages to balance the beautiful and the grotesque in a, a really expert way. I wanted to start by asking, this is your first novel after quite a few years of short story writing, and there's a real sort of haunting 
real life story behind it. Can you tell us a bit about this background, how the novel came about and the true story that sparked it? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for such lovely comments as well. Of course, that's so nice to hear. I should say this is probably, I should probably say this is not the first novel I've written. Like many debut novelists, I've got a few others under my belt. that In got the drawer? In the drawer. And people say, will you get them out again? I'm like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason they didn't get published. One did get an agent, but I decided to take it off the table, actually, and then proceed with obvious instead because it just wasn't it was going to be wasn't going to be the right debut novel for me if that makes sense but yeah obvious obvious came about i was actually listening to this american life do you know that one i do yes the podcast of course yeah i was listening to it and i think it must have been about 2017 and when i was like really really into listening to this american life a really distinct period of my life um and they had a kind of like 20 minute section on the real story that kind of inspired Obvious Builds a Girl. And I was just so horrified by how it was not framed by them so much. I'm not, this is not an anti This American Life diatribe, but <laughs> how it was framed in the people who lived in the area it happened. So it happened in Key West in Florida, in the US. And it was framed as a tale of undying love. And they actually do tours around this area, around this tale of undying love. And a lot of the old women who they interviewed in the podcast saw the real situation as one of a man who just loved someone so much that he did this to her. And I was so affronted by this. I was so, as a feminist, as a woman, as someone with like media literacy, I was just so <laughs> kind of shocked you know, because it, it's a real brutal story. What happens in the book um, very closely follows the real life plot as well, although I've given it, um, you know, the characters are completely different to how they were in real life and the time frame has shifted. Um, but essentially what happens is that a German doctor, and I say this with implied inverted commas, <laughs> became um, completely obsessed with a young Cuban-American patient who had TB. Um, and he convinces her family that he can save her when, of course, at the time it happened, which was 1920s in real life and 1950s in the book, there was no cure. So I never know how to talk about this without giving it away too much, but she dies. And that only happens about halfway through the book. Maybe, that, <laughs> maybe that's a good way to put it. It is very much not the end of the story. And it's a book that's intended to be all about women's agency and systemic abuse and who owns a woman and who owns a woman's body. And the way it was framed in the real life podcast was very much that he, you know, he just loved her so much. And I just reject that completely. So I couldn't get away from that. It was, you know, it really lived in the back of my mind, this kind of the injustice of this framing of this story and this kind of story, which of course plays its way out in so many news articles around abuse of women and things like this. So yeah, I just wanted to present something that challenged that narrative. I think when I first read the book, I hadn't quite clocked, or maybe it wasn't in there, I'm not sure you can tell me, that there's a section near the back, the author's note, where you you sort of relay the story mentioned in this American life as a few other, and as well as a few others. Well, so interestingly, the author's note wasn't in the hardback. That will be why I didn't remember it. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm not just trying to pull the wool over your eyes. It was just in the, it was added to the paperback. And yeah, it was an interesting question of whether you wanted to give that context because you want the book to stand on its own. And I hope it does. I think it does. But yeah, it was, I actually had in the, in the first um, version of the uh, hardback, I did have a line afterwards that just referenced the main case that it's based on. And then I removed it because I thought, I want this to stand on its own and I want the, it to be there, the additional context to be there if someone wants to find that. Mm. And then by the paperback, you're like, okay, well, so people, you know, this has been out nine months. You can see what a lot of people's reactions are and you can see whether people already know the story and stuff like this. So it felt, I mean, between the book coming out in hardback and the paperback coming out, I think Roe versus Wade had been um, repealed in the US as well. So the question around women's uh, bodily autonomy became kind of, for me at least, a lot more sharp. Mm. You know, it felt more pressing as a question. So it then felt like, okay, well, I can tie this in. I can give my reasons as a writer for wanting to talk about this and how this isn't an isolated incident and how really what the book is talking about is a thread of lack of women's agency that goes through kind of all of our society <laughs> not just the last hundred years of course but how it's not a question that's been answered now what also really stands out for me from memory with this book is its narrative structure and the dual voices which are very distinctive um, and as you mentioned the story itself centers on a girl called luciana but we don't we don't hear her voice can you talk about the dual narrative you chose for this book and how did you go about the process of writing each perspective? So I always knew that I didn't want to have Luciana's voice in there. I always knew that Luciana was going to be a kind of lack in the middle of the book. And the point was that she wouldn't have gotten a voice. She didn't get a voice in this narrative and how it was told um, anyway. So I wanted it to be I wanted the lack of her in the middle to be very kind of poignant and, and impactful. And I always knew I wanted to have um, Wilhelm's character because I love an unreliable narrator, Steph. I love stories written from the perspective of terrible men. So, I mean, I love Lolita. I love The People in the Trees by Hanya Yangahara, uh, to the extent that I've got a tattoo from that book on my thumb. Amazing. Yeah, which I didn't tell her when I met her because I was so afraid of coming across like a dweeb. But I love those stories because it makes you complicit in the kind of social crimes that are being talked about. And they are, I love questions that, I love stories that um, give a question but don't give a clear answer and force you as a reader to come to your answer. Like I always mention this, there's a J.G. Ballard quote and he says something like, I want to provoke a reader. And I think of that a lot and because I think that's what I'm trying to do. I want to provoke a reaction, whether it's good or bad. For me, the worst thing that a book can be is forgettable. Mm. So I don't want to produce that kind of work. I want to produce work that stays with people. So I always knew it was going to be Wilhelm and from Wilhelm's perspective. And he's, his voice came very, very easily to me because he is that kind of 19th century Gothic kind of voice you know someone who's using their medical authority and their social authority to kind of imprint his view of a narrative of a situation on the reader so that people say was it hard to write such a horrible person and i'm like no it's actually quite fun because they're not bound by 
staying close to reality or they're not bound by polite conversation things like this so it's actually just really fun to, to write a really terrible person that's good at least it's also <laughs> a voice that we're a male voice that we're just very familiar with as women aren't we exactly exactly we all been patronized we've all had people speak over us we've all had men give their version of a situation that's um not the same as ours but it's heard over us so it was very easy and quite fun and now I'm sick of him but at the time of writing <laughs> because I also write quite quickly so um it wasn't too much and the first draft of the book was actually only Wilhelm mm. so it was only from his perspective and I've got an incredible writing group who um includes Kirsty Logan and Camilla Gradova what a group sorry but I know just, uh, <laughs> good lord that is that's a super group right there I don't know what I'm doing there. There's also Heather Palmer, who's an incredible comics writer. And I, yeah, I'm in awe of them generally. But we workshop each other's work and we're very honest with each other about what's working and what isn't. And it was just became clear it was just too bleak. Mm. And also, which I'm fine with because I love a bleak book, but because it's also my debut novel, you're doing, a, you're asking a lot of an audience who might not know you, who might not, understand your politics you're asking a huge amount of them to trust you to this extent of staying with a character like that for the whole book and you're really relying on them to read between the lines to get what you're trying to put across and I also was like do I want to give an entire novel over to this horrible white man character you know you don't want to be complicit in the silencing even as a writer, even though it's fictional, even though the, the story you're producing is fictional. So it was the next draft that Gabriella was brought in. And I found it much more difficult to write Gabriella because I didn't want her to be this kind of perfect angel. I didn't want it to be this black and white. I wanted them to both to be gray characters, but to different degrees. And I wanted you to see Gabriella as someone who has her own challenges and is shaped by all the things that happen in her life. I wanted to see her family as one that had made errors, especially her dad. And I wanted to see their political background as more interesting and more complex as well than, you know, to just put out there that she was just a perfect person. And I also wanted to try and get across that I don't want you to think her version of Luciana is perfect either, because we shape people to what we want them to be, or we hold them up against our expectations of them and find them lacking. Whereas they might not have really been lacking in that way. It might just be that we were holding them up to a standard they couldn't meet. And also when you lose people, you rewrite your memories of them because you don't want to think ill of them. So I really wanted there to be two unfinished perspectives or compromised perspectives. And I wanted Luciana to sit in the middle of these as a character that the reader themselves has to construct. That's fascinating. And that links to something I was going to ask you about unreliable narrators, actually, because Wilhelm is very clearly uh, an unreliable narrator, but Gabriella feels like an unreliable narrator of sorts as well. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear that that was very much a deliberate choice. Yeah. And also, like, how much do you tell if when you're telling your own story? I'm really obsessed with thinking about memoir in this way. How much of your story can you tell 
and be honest. We we think of certain memoirs as being radically honest, but you, they can't be. You would never say all the ra- all the honest things about your life because there's things you're ashamed of, and you might say certain ones that you can posit into a literary sense in a memoir you know what i mean you be like well you know i really didn't like this about myself and then i changed and grew sometimes we don't change and grow sometimes we just do things that are awful and then we might do them again later in our lives and you don't tell people about these things or you don't want to admit them or you don't want to rehash them or give them space so i wanted it to be the same for gabriella obviously gabriella and wilhelm are both writing about their own lives their own stories and yeah, I don't want you to think that Gabriella is telling you everything that happened because people don't, you know, I love that about people. I love the complexity of real people. So I always want to try and reach for that in, in characters as well. Yeah, we'll never know the whole the whole truth, will we? The objective truth. Exactly. If you watch two people have an argument and then you talk to them about it afterwards, you will see that what actually happened has almost no relation to how two people (laughs) experience it after the fact. From a writing perspective, it's a really, really interesting exercise if you ever catch your friends having an argument or family members or something like that, or even yourself, you know, say to your partner, if you have an argument with them, what happened? Can you run me through what you think happened there? Because it will be really different to what you think. And that is just like so that's such a ripe ground, isn't it, for, for narrative? I wanted to talk about Von Tor's voice, again, not to uh, focus too much on him, but um, his voice is it's a very uncomfortable reading experience. He, um, he writes in a way that is quite cold, even when he thinks he's being romantic, and he weaves these images of care and love, the kind of childlike qualities of Luciana with some really quite graphic images of decay and degradation and sort of bodily images, really. Could you talk a bit more about that? Because I'm just really interested in the way that he talks about what he's doing and his relationship to Luciana and his the way he perceives himself versus the way that other people perceive him. I guess I'll talk about the, the bodily stuff first, because as you mentioned, it is quite, it's quite visceral, this book. In, in fact, all of my work is quite visceral, to be honest. As my mum says, why can't you ever write anything nice, Heather? <laughs> Which I can't. I can't. Um, yeah, there's a lot of very um, medical detail, or maybe even pseudo-medical detail, about what happens to a body, um, but also about experiments on bodies and things like this. And I'm, I'm really interested in the way that doctors kind of have to dehumanize people, their patients, to be able to do the work that they do. So a surgeon can't see you as a human person in the way that I see you currently as a human person, Steph, if you're then going to cut their bodies open and have their bodies out and put their hands in it. like you, There has to be a distance and technique that's used there. And this is why we often think of people who do that kind of work as quite cold, where you might have a GP or a nurse who is a lot warmer and, you know, because they they don't have to do inhuman things to a body. Cutting someone open and moving their organs around or taking something out or putting it in, that's inhuman. It's, it's brutal. So there's a, a real kind of necessary dehumanizing, I think, in that process. And it's only one way as well. You don't dehumanize a, a surgeon. You yeah. actually, re- you put a lot of res- um, respect on them. You put a lot of faith into them as a person. So I find that really interesting, the kind of one-way nature of that. And a lot of medical writing is really cold as well, because number one, it's scientific. Number two, it's usually in like a journal or a paper. And number three, 
you you can't expect them to talk about their patients as it you know as if they have these great full human lives because what if they die how do you then move on as a person if you've caused someone's death and that kind of thing so yeah i was really i really want to bring that across just because i'm so fascinated by it but i also love so i really like gabriel garcia marquez and i was quite young when i read love in the time of cholera and i thought it was really stupid and overwrought but now i realize it's kind of satirical of this idea of this, these grand loves. And I wanted to bring in a tiny little bit of that. You know, the way he talks about love is over the top and hysterical, if you will, if you don't mind me using quite a gendered phrase. I think he does have a kind of hysterical, it's almost like an 80s new romantic performance of love, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that has almost no relation to what I think love really is and, and the way you express love to people. And he never actually does anything to Luciana, which is consider it has consideration of her as a person. It's it, He's putting an expression of love onto her. He isn't giving her something. He isn't holding her. He's objectifying her as an object of his romance. And I find that troubling and fascinating because it is, kind of how we teach people to be romantic in a way and it certainly is how we teach boys to approach women and i hope that is changing very much i really hope it is but i really wanted to bring across those two things and also it was just great fun as well <laughs> to have him kind of write about these women that he'd been married to in such an offhand way you know it's such a a terrible way for someone to talk about someone they've been in a relationship with to kind of sum, summon them up in a sentence or like he has two children and you never hear about them again. And it was, it was great fun to write because it is expressing something that I think is really real, which is some people can just compartmentalize. And especially when they, when they've not really been, they've never really had to consider the humanity of other people properly, whether that's through social systems or through their standing or through their upbringing or through the relationships they've had. They just don't see people as people in the same way that they are. And that's kind of, maybe that's a narcissist. Maybe that's a psychopath. Maybe that's a sociopath. I don't know, but it was a great project to try and bring that voice through. I get quite, I get quite a lot of friends text me and say, You've written a really horrible little book here, Heather Parry. Or I see, I see readers' reviews that are like, "This really made me angry," and I, I, that is exactly what I want the reaction to this book to be. I really want you to be angry. I want you to be disturbed by how this played out, but not only at this one person because I don't actually think that's helpful because this one person did not exist out with society you know this is a person who falls within a spectrum of male abuse towards women and i want you to feel angry because he did this you know this in, and there are other people who've done very similar you know obviously there are people that abuse women all the time but i want you to feel complicit in a society that isn't preventing this somehow so yeah unsettled is how i want people to feel angry you know, provoked as well is the word I come back to again. And Orpheus feels like uh, it's very much a work of gothic storytelling, which draws on some classic tropes. Can you tell us a bit more about these and your decision to bring the story, as you mentioned before, it's kind of based on a story from the 20s, but it's based in the 50s. 
Can you talk a, a little bit about that decision and how, um, were there any challenges to kind of reimagining gothic tropes in a more kind of modern setting? Yeah, well, I was, I think I was always going to write a gothic novel. Um, you know, I, I talk about being on the goosebumps to point horror to Stephen King pipeline when I was in my, <laughs> my teen years, like many other writers of dark fiction. And then when I went to university, we did a gothic literature course and that just, defined my whole personality from the age of 18 onwards and 18 years later I'm still there and I just love the way that the gothic talks about power and the way that it talks about social structures because the point of the gothic as it was originally um, the European gothic you know it's about a decaying class of people like a, a social class that is no longer holding the money anymore and you know that's where you get the grand gothic houses that are falling apart and the ghosts and the all this kind of stuff so when you look at it from that perspective it's not difficult to bring to a capitalist society you know what i mean there was a capitalist society then but if we call it late capitalism now and you know we can see that the social contract is breaking down and the kind of you know, the promises that were made to people, if you do this, if you work hard, you'll succeed, you'll progress. We can see that they are breaking down and they, if they were ever true, which I don't think they were, they certainly aren't true now. And part of the reason for moving the story forwards, well, there's two reasons. I wanted to bring in the Second World War. So I wanted Wilhelm to have something in his backstory that was a real thing that happened to him that was really that really was an atrocity. And it was an atrocity what the Allied forces did to Dresden. So he was present for the bombing of Dresden. And it was a it was a terrible thing to just destroy a city like that, even though it was in the bounds of war. So I really wanted him to have something that was something really bad that had happened. But then he was then going to use as a kind of excuse throughout the rest of his story. And I also wanted to have the Cuban Revolution, <laughs> so, you know, small, small things, <laughs> Second World War and Cuban Revolution. Um, I don't know a thing about history either, so it was terrible. Um, I am really interested in the concept of the American dream for the reasons that I've just talked about. You know, the promises that are made and how this really um, falls down for the people who approach that concept um, and I lived in Latin America for three years before I wrote this book and it really embeds you in a Latin American experience of American and British politics and what we do as countries. So yeah, um, Luciana's family moves from Cuba to Florida because her dad essentially wants them to kind of escape the Cuban revolution because they are relatively wealthy. And that is a key part of the story in that what happened to Luciana would not really have happened had they not made this choice. And that's not to try and blame the character of her dad, but it's to try and bring in the ways that these social systems affect people and people's lives mm -hmm. and they affect different people in different ways. So yeah, there was, I think the Gothic tropes really work because it's not kind of overtly Gothic. You know, I don't have a grand old mansion. I have a man in a house in Key West, but he is kind of the mad scientist. He's the kind of classic yeah. Gothic mad scientist, which is why his voice came so easily and so naturally because I I've read so many of those stories and I didn't want Luciana or Gabriella to be your kind of Gothic heroine in a way that they were had absolutely no agency and they're just kind of being projected on 
because the characters in like Dracula, the female characters in Dracula are great, but they don't really exist. They wouldn't pass the Bechdel test. These books, no. <laughs> they don't. They don't really have. They don't have hopes and desires that exist outside of the the structures of relationships. You know, so I wanted to kind of modernize the female characters in that way by having them actually want things outside of a guy. <laughs> so yeah, it was a, it was a challenge, but I think. I couldn't have not written it with that gothic underpinning. I think probably a lot of things that I write have that gothic underpinning. Certainly my second novel, which hasn't yet been finalised, is is very gothic as well. It's a brilliant book. It's very striking and it, it does leave you with a real sense of injustice and anger. So I think it achieves all of those things. I feel like I could talk about that book forever, but I did want to also touch on some aspects of your short story writing, and in particular, the short story collection that you published recently called This Is My Body Given For You. The book explores, as you've kind of mentioned, similar themes to Orpheus around sort of bodies that transform or mutate that are kind of exploited or manipulated. And again, these are very powerful images that can be very dark, but there's also a real playfulness to the form and the language and the tone of some of these stories. And I'm wondering, does the short story form for you, does it grant you a particular freedom to be able to experiment and play with your writing or sort of manipulate and transform it in a way that sort of reflects the the bodies that are being manipulated too? I don't know, because I, I think I hate short story writing. No. <laughs> yeah, I find... I have a theory that if you do both, you're really one or the other. And the other one is like a, like, you know, passing glass every time you do it. And for me, I love writing a novel. Like it's hard. It's challenging. There's, you know, there's the uh, landscape of it where at some point you think you're a genius and then half an hour later, you actually think you should be thrown into the sea and then it's awful. And, you know, there's a real process with it, but I feel like I know what I'm doing in it. I'm excited to approach a novel. So I'm about to go on a writing residency for five weeks and try and get a first draft of a new one down. And I'm I'm like bubbling with it. Like I can't stop thinking about it. I kind of can't stop talking about it. Short stories are just agonizing every single time <laughs> I do one. <laughs> it's like... But you've done quite a lot. I know. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I Do you know, I absolutely thought this was something, yeah, that you you were particularly drawn to. And it is really hard to make a success of short stories sometimes. Some of them really, really do fall flat and you do strike me as someone who does them very well. So it's it's funny to hear that you don't always maybe necessarily enjoy the process of writing them. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm really glad. I kind of, I just don't feel like I know what I'm doing. And um, so uh, maybe, was it 2016, I won the Bridge Award for an Emerging Writer. And as part of that, I got to go on two courses at Moniac Moor, which is the uh, writing centre we have in Scotland up near Inverness, a really beautiful place. And I went on a novel writing course with um, Michelle Faber and M. Mackey. And I, then I did a short story course with Susie Maguire and Julian Goff. And it was the first time I've had any kind of formal training in writing because I did English literature and philosophy, but I, I avoided creative writing like the plague because it was really what I wanted to do. And I was terrified that I would not be good at it. You know, that way that humans are complex and push away what they really want and this kind of thing. So it was the first time I'd had real 
teaching in the craft of writing and i remember they gave us on the short story course they gave us um like a project to do like a little exercise and then they explained kind of what was happening and then julian said to me not you you're doing something different <laughs> it's kind of like what is that <laughs> like i still don't know i i still couldn't tell you and i sit down and i read other people's short stories and i'm like i don't know how they do this i honestly don't and yeah it's they're painful to me in a way that novel writing isn't um and i think maybe it's i don't know i i am always i always want my writing to be saying something i want it to have a point and i want that point to be not entirely obvious but but findable if you want to and i want the collection so the first collection that you talked about this is my body it's not got a kind of moral project in the same way that orpheus has but the kind of thinking behind it is our bodies are very changeable. And this comes from my experience of when I was a really little kid, I had really severe eczema. So the thing that was supposed to separate me from the outside world, the, my skin was like permeable and, and unreliable and often um, open and, and exposing and vulnerable. And it just made me think so much about every day you wake up, your body might be a different thing. It might be in a different state and you've kind of got no control over it. So I wanted to bring that kind of view of the world to the collection, but it doesn't have a moral project in the way that Orpheus does, but each story I think does. And that's hard work. <laughs> it's like just tiring and yeah, sharp. I, would, I think it was a sharp process writing, writing a short story. In, and you just don't have the room to kind of spread your wings that you do in a novel. So I guess, yeah, you're having to really keep things tight. Every word counts and you're trying to achieve a lot in a very small amount of space. But the structure of this collection is really interesting too, like Orpheus. So these are, a lot of these stories have been published in other places before and they've been sort of collected together. But there is an, a, an overarching narrative voice as well that kind of splits the stories into segments and offers a short introduction to each segment. Can you talk about this and about the purpose that that narrator serves? Yeah, so um, this comes from the fact that I don't like the way I read most short story collections, which is that I sit, I sit down with them and read them one after the other as if it's a novel. And I think that is to the huge detriment of each story and the book as a whole. And because what I think you should do is sit in a toilet and read a short story. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is the perfect way. Or when you have a coffee in the middle of your work day, or when you're sitting in the car waiting for your kids to come out of school or whatever. I think that is actually when you should read a short story, when it's contained, when you can't then immediately go on to another one afterwards, when you then have space to sit and think about it and sit with it. But I have no self-control whatsoever. So if you give me a short story collection, I will just want to finish it. And the narrative structure, like you said, we've got someone who's kind of like a nameless narrator or a voice or um, an editor or however you see them presenting the stories in, in little chunks. It might be one story, it might be three. And they're telling you what kind of story it is. So they're saying this is a love story or this is a tragedy or this is a story about change and renewal or revenge. But the point of that is... This is, this is the most pretentious thing I say in these interviews. It's a Brechtian distancing technique, if you will, to push the reader away from 
an all-encompassing experience and to make them stop and consider the fact that what they're about to read is fiction. You know, a novel is about having someone lose themselves in that world, lose themselves in the novel you've written. But I don't want that. I want you to have to acknowledge the fact that you're about to read a short story that someone has put together in a particular way towards a particular end. And I want you to then not read the one after it immediately. So it's me being really micromanaging of how people <laughs> read their short story collection. And I don't know if that's great. I think that's really, really fascinating. And someone else, I think I'd read a review where someone had said that it also gave them the really unsettling feeling of being observed whilst they're reading the collection. So you're kind of being, yeah, there's someone, um, anonymous person that's sort of curating that collection for you and observing you as you experience those stories. That's exactly, that's exactly what I want. I actually really love when you get a short story published in a magazine or, you know, I had a short story, I wrote a short story that was to go in a um, an exhibition of kind of um, automatons. So my story was then read over this automaton moving. And I love that because it kind of drops quite an odd story into someone's regular life. Or, you know, you just get a short story in a magazine that's not about short stories or you know, wherever it appears. I like them appearing just as singular things that just make people quite unsettled. And then they go about their life because that's how I think they should actually be approached. So then, yeah, putting them together in a collection proposes a different kind of problem for me in how I want my stories to be approached. I've very recently gone back to listening to um, Blue Jam. Do you remember the Chris Morris radio show? I don't think I do, no. Oh man, it was this, um, when would it have come? I feel like it came after the day today and it was played between midnight and 3am or midnight and two, I think on radio one. Oh, and it's the weirdest, most unsettling thing. And I've only come to realize what an enormous influence it had on me because it scared the bejesus out of me when I was younger and that it's like music, but it's often quite kind of trip hoppy, weird, dark music. You might have like an instrumental thing that goes into some porter's head. And then you'll get these weird little sketches, which are dark surrealist or like a monologue from someone who's done a terrible thing. It's just, they're just, they drop in these little narratives in this already unsettling landscape. And you're like, what the hell was that? Like if you came home from a club night and you listen to this, I can't imagine what effect it would have on you. And I realized that's kind of what I'm trying to do with all of my literature, I think. Feels like you've worked. Yeah, you wake up the next morning. It feels like you've had a horrible dream or something that you've yes. can't work it. If it's something you've really experienced or something that you've made up in your head, yeah, something you can't quite shake. That's what I want. There is a an element of humour in some of these stories as well, and I think the I don't want to say that the horrific because these stories aren't. I would categorise them as horror, but you know they don't sit squarely within horror but there is a sort of a close relationship between humor and horror were you thinking about that when you were writing some of these stories you know i'm really glad to hear you say that because i keep being described as a horror writer in events and stuff and i'm like that's not really how i see myself i don't think these are horror books they're not horror books in the way you know kirstie's kirstie logan's things we say in the dark they're horror short stories or yeah, I don't know. I, d I don't think they sit squarely there. There is a lot of humour in, in the book as well, I think. And it's because of what I generally think, how I think of my work is that I think of it as the grotesque. Yes. Yeah, a literary form that kind of sits between comedy and horror. Yeah. 
And it often has people changing into things or becoming things or transmuting or their bodies are changed or they're changed as people or objects are changed into people or people are changed their animals. You know, it's a real kind of Venn diagram between surrealism, horror, comedy, absurdism. And I think mindset's there towards the kind of (laughs) comedy horror overlap, if you will. And I guess that's what I'm thinking of most because I don't, I, if you told me to sit down and write a horror story, I don't think I would be able to do it. Mm. I think it would be really hammy. I think it would be writing, you know, a kind of 17th century ripoff that wouldn't quite work. I just don't, I, I find genre quite constraining as a concept. I know other people find it really, really freeing to kind of have the structure that you're working with, but I don't at all. I find any kind of constraint on my work of what it should be at the end, I find really, really like crippling, just really, really cannot work with that. So having more of a kind of Venn diagram, a kind of your work sits somewhere on this spectrum of weird things. um, That works a lot more for me, I think. Before we wrap up, there was one story in particular from the collection, which is the final story, which is a, it's a choose your own adventure style story. Mm-hmm. How does that sit with the rest of the collection? And what did you want to achieve with that story in particular? So, yeah, this is a choose your own adventure story, which is playable. So you can either read it as it's presented on the page or there's a, a track A and a track B and they tell two slightly different stories um and it almost killed me writing it because it's actually incredibly hard and I had to have each little bit you know every section is like two three lines and I had to have them all on bits of paper on my living room floor do you know I wondered about that I could just imagine you piecing these bits (laughs) puzzled together you know the meme of the guy uh, pointing at the at the board with all the bits of paper and strings it was exactly like that how, if you read it through on the page as it's given, how, I think how you view that story would be affected by how you see the world and how you see women's place in the home and how you acknowledge or understand the pressures on women, even in modern society, the pressures that are on them to um, get married and have kids and live their life in service of some other person, whether that's a husband, a child, an adopted child, whoever it is. You know, I get I, as a person who's not going to have kids, you often get people saying to you, well, you're going to you can just be a really great auntie. And I think, yeah, I can. Or, and I am. But also I could just be a woman, <laughs> I could yeah. just be a person living my own life. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? So I really wanted to make space for different interpretations of that book. But it is also sorry of that story. But it is also about a woman taking quite a radical choice quite a horrifying choice but one that is embedded in the reality the medical reality of what happened to kind of recalcitrant women if you will not even that long ago which is lobotomy and the the machine that she builds apes the real method of lobotomizing women in that time which was very very brutal and blunt and i wanted it to be a horrible little end to the book i really wanted it to be the kind of story that makes you feel unsettled in your own skin, but also one that really defied an obvious understanding. So I want you to have to think about that and try to come to what I was trying to come to as the writer, but also what you come to as the reader. I want you to kind of reflect on that. So I really don't like wrapping things up too neatly, as you might have noticed from all of my work. (laughs) And putting it at the end of the book, 
I think you've been kind of fluffed for that level of um, horror by the end because you've, you've made it for everything else. And yeah, I want it to be a kind of like, what are you going to do with this now? And it makes you feel very complicit in a way that is quite unsettling. I'm really glad to hear that. I like the word complicit for mm. readership. So I'm catching you, as you mentioned, I'm catching you before you go away for a few weeks. Um, so tell us a bit more about what you've got coming up. It sounds like you've got a few different books in the works. Yes. Yeah. So there's my, the Inkling, which is coming out in um, April 2024, is called um, Electric Dreams, Sex Robots on the Failed Promises of Capitalism. Um, and they are 20,000 word nonfiction books. I really, really recommend everyone check out the whole um, Inkling series, um, especially the ones by Anahit Beirouz and Katie Go, which are my favourites so far. Um, I have a second novel written, but that's only just being let out into the world right now. So um, fingers crossed for that <laughs> for that one and where it goes, I don't quite know yet. Um, and yeah, I have been part of this amazing residency called the Here and Now Residency this year, which is six um, writers from Scotland, based in Scotland, sorry, three writers from Scotland and three writers um, with West African heritage or from West Africa on a cross-cultural residency funded by the British Council. So. We had a month up at Moniac Moor in the summer, and we were about to have a month at the Library of Africa and the African Diaspora in Accra in Ghana, and then five days at the Lagos International Poetry Festival. Um, and that has been life-changing because we I have never been on a residency where people have got on so well. We have <laughs> become such good friends. I was lucky enough to already know the two other Scottish writers who are Alicia Per Mohammed and Amanda Thompson. Um, and the other three writers are Edwige Drove from the Cote d'Ivoire, Chika Jones and Tolu Agbalusi, who are Nigerian but live in the south of England. And we're kind of discussing and writing around the theme of here and now. And it's been such a powerful mind-expanding, hilarious experience together and such an incredible gift to be given this amount of time to just work. So it's nine weeks in total. And yeah, I mean, I, I wish this for all writers. I wish all writers were given this kind of space and time and money to write because we're also paid to be there. Um, and the space to be with other writers to influence each other and to sit with each other's work and their view of the world and the experiences that they bring to conversations. And yeah, I'm writing a novel currently, which is kind of a bit of a step away. Currently it's a kind of, I'm describing it as a squishy, salty, weird, <laughs> kind of sexy, surrealist story, kind of about wh what it takes to live, like how we, how we kind of live now and all of what everyone else has said during this period and what we've talked about and the work that they've brought and read and shared, all of that is going into the book. So yeah, who knows how that will turn out in the end. Well, it sounds like such a wonderful opportunity. And that paired with, um, you mentioned earlier, your, your super group, writing group, um, really shows the value of being able to get feedback and bounce off other people and sort of build relationships because writing can be such a solitary act, can't it? Yeah, and honestly, I would never have a career if it wasn't for other writers. I have been folded in and helped and mentored and 
you know, held in such an amazing way. I did not come from a background where I knew people who were writers. I didn't have anyone when I was growing up who worked in the creative industries or anything like this. I'd never really thought that I could be a writer. And then I've just, it's like, you know, when people crowd surf, if you yeah. <laughs> like, I just kind of Being jumped <laughs> yeah, and all these other people raised their hands up and helped me along. And yeah, I really wouldn't, wouldn't be where I am without them all. That's lovely. And we're doing a podcast, I think, soon on the benefits and the real value of writing residencies as well. So it's great to hear that that's having such a brilliant impact on you. Writing residencies have completely changed my practice, honestly. I, yeah, they've been revolutionary for me. So if there's one piece of advice, it's that everyone should give it a shot at applying for one because yes, you never know, you might get it and it might be a life-changing experience. Exactly, 100%. Heather, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been lovely to chat to you. I think I could chat to you forever about lots of odd and surreal and weird things. Where can people find you if they want to track down your work or follow you online? So I'm um, at Heather Parry UK on Twitter, if Twitter still exists by the time this podcast comes out. Um, and I'm on Instagram at Heather Parry Writer, because there is another Heather Parry who is a Hollywood movie producer. And I, so if you Google me, sometimes her name, her face comes up and people are very disappointed when I show up at events. Um, and then my uh, website is heatherparry.co.uk and everything's kind of linked there as well. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Steph. A big thank you to Heather and Steph for their time and to you for listening. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook and you can sign up to the NCW newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website by going to the Support Us page. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and a review, because this helps other writers to find us too. Thanks again. Keep writing, and I'll catch up with you on the next episode.